You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Alexandra Guerra and I'm here with my co-founder, Christoph Jaspe in wonderful Denver. It is wonderful. We're really getting to know this room here in Techstars. We're still recording in the Techstars office and quite grateful actually to our guest who pushed very hard for us to join this program and put many bugs in many different people's ears. So thank you, Phil. We are grateful for you, not only for that, but also for figuring out ways to collaborate with Nori in this broader objective that we both share, which is to restore soil health and sequester a bunch of carbon along the way make healthier food, shift systems, all this fun stuff. You've heard the podcast before, so you know how we like to start. I actually should introduce you as Dr. Phil Taylor, executive director and co-founder of Mad Agriculture. You're also a poet. Maybe we'll get some like slam poetry. It could happen. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't put it past you. But Phil, we like to start out with people's stories. We want to know sort of what motivates them, what makes them tick. Why are they here sitting on the Reversing Climate Change podcast? How did it all get going for you? Well, I grew up up on the top of the Chesapeake Bay in in a family that loved its place and its community. And my grandfather was the only doctor in a rural town. And you know, it was abundantly clear at a young age that everyone in my family, you know, uses life to discover their gifts and figure out how to serve them, you know, serve the world with them. And, you know, I spent a lot of times in the woodlands and deciduous forests and coastal uh, areas of the East Coast and I really fell in love with nature and over a period of years just decided to spend my life trying to figure out how to live within the the grand system that we call Earth. And take the system that's quite broken right now and start healing it. And in that process, healing ourselves, healing the land and, and our relationships to one another. So that's, that's the short story that is convenient to tell. And there's a lot of like hiccups and light, dark cycles along the way. A lot of existential crises about who am I and what am I going to do? How am I going to behave in the world? And what, who, what do I have to offer? You know, all of those big, heavy questions that I think a lot of people go through as they want to serve and, and participate in something bigger than themselves. Um, there's been a lot of that, and we can talk about that. But I, short story is I, I grew up and, and fell in love with the earth and believe it's a home that should be cherished and loved and, and restored when and where possible. Amazing. On the last week's episode with Eric Kornacki, we also talked about relationships and how important it is, like interpersonal relationships and our relationship with food and the planet in terms of how do we actually combat and reverse climate change. That's critical. I mean, I think that climate change is the symptom of a deep disconnection uh, between humans and our dependency on the earth. You know, it's, it's a and so many of the solutions out there really band-aiding a deeper cultural problem, which I think really the answer to that cultural problem is falling in love with the places that we depend on. And as we fall in love with the places we depend on, it forces us to, it demands of us to use virtue um, in all of our transactions, business and otherwise. And when we start building in love and empathy and compassion and reciprocity into every transaction that we make, the world will inevitably become a more beautiful place and things like climate change will go away. Couldn't agree more. So somewhere along the way in your abbreviated story, 
you decided to get a PhD in soil science. I'm interested. What, what drew you in that direction? So what originally drew me to graduate school was just a feeling that I didn't know enough. You know, I, I had worked in a very short stint in Malawi, Africa. And during that, that work there, I was actually distributing um, some seeds and fertilizers as part of an IMF World Bank sort of agricultural extension program and realized that everything I was doing was not helping at all. It was just further worsening this already broken system of global commodity markets and trade. And, and so I, I ejected out of that and went to grad school as a way of finding a home to discover myself and, and the world. And so eventually, you know, I got my master's and my PhD at CU Boulder in uh, rainforest ecology with a focus on soils. And I was just enthralled with the beauty of the earth. I really wanted to discover the, the essence of how this place works. You know, how, do the, how does the visible move to the invisible, you know, through gas exchange? And how does photosynthesis work? And, and what does carbon mean? And what does it mean to live in the carbon cycle? You know, and, and I, I was enchanted by it. And that was wonderful up until a point where I, I felt like a lot of my work was done in an academic container without any real relevance to the, the problems of the world. And so that sort of uh, piece of me that demanded service and helping humanity and figuring ourselves out, it, was, it, was, it wasn't being served. And that was part of my gifting as well as a human. And so I... I you know, fell in love with soil science in a very academic kind of theoretical manner, and, and it's come full circle into using it as a way to um, solve climate change and, and build fertile soils that produce healthy food. We're into that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that somehow led to the creation of mad agriculture. So what is mad agriculture? Yeah, mad, mad ag. So mad agriculture was, was inspired by the mad farmer poems of Wendell Berry. Um, Wendell Berry is one of the great agrarians of our time. Um, Episode number two in a row that we talk about Wendell Berry. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's someone to stand on the shoulders of, as there are many others. And, you know, Wendell Berry has these mad farmer poems that he wrote that really call us to a radical reworking of economy based on love and, and other virtues as in, a, in a healthy dose of radicalism. And so as I was leaving academia... And trying to define and discover what I wanted to do, I had no home. You know, I wanted, I wanted to work in an organization where I could write poetry and write science in the same day and, and call that work. I wanted to be in conversations where we could crack open everything and use the head, heart, and soul to create, you know, creative solutions for the world. And there was no organization that felt like a home for me. So my wife and I created Mad Agriculture based on that kind of essence of Wendell Berry's poems. And we've been putting it together, you know, since last January, really, is when we kind of consider our founding moment. And it's been taking ship ever since. Amazing. No, I, I want to talk more about what the challenges are for soil science and rainforest. I mean, we could talk about rain, soil scientists, but I'm really yeah. curious. I'm very curious and it's very timely to discuss that. Well, there are global market forces that are just driving destruction. You know, that's, that's the heart of it. You know, supply chains um, wrap around the globe like roots. And when you feed one of those, it can hide a lot of the destruction away from our consumption and hide a lot of injustice. Oh, yeah. And so when we eat, you know, a bag of potato chips fried in palm oil, you know, it has a direct connection to the way that Sumatra is being used for land use. And being a tropical rainforest, 
ecologist, I saw an immense amount of destruction mm. um, across the global south. And I tried to develop solutions for it, but I realized that it was sort of a another form of intellectual imperialism. You know, me sitting in Boulder, creating solutions for a world that I have no grounding in. Mm-hmm. And I really had a problem with that. And so... One of ten reasons that I started Mad Agriculture was this was this overwhelming feeling to do work that was place based in the community that I feel at most home in, because my future is wrapped up with their future in a very clear way. And so, you know, we work mainly across the Great Plains right now, which are systems and in, in prairies and places that I feel very familiar with, increasingly familiar with, and I think our work is a lot more relevant, a lot more impactful, a lot more grounded than what I was trying to do when I was working in the tropics, even though I, I really enjoyed that work and it was an important growth phase for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, the barriers in many ways are the forces we cannot control that require a slow and subversive disruption. And there are many different levers to pull on. And we can talk about those a little later, maybe, and how we work. But these big systems, you know, it's very hard to see the systems we're in. And it's very hard once you see the system to live outside of it. Yeah. And it takes a lot of courage and boldness to do that. And I feel like Mad Ag is kind of on that forefront as well as Nori and, and a bunch of other people here in the Techstars office. And so we're at that bleeding edge of creativity that's very turbulent. It's very radical. It's very hard to live at that bleeding edge. There's a lot of failures that happen there. And then ultimately that's where growth happens as well. So. We have a pretty, like our listeners are pretty well informed and they're tuned into this, but it's interesting because when I go home to see my family and, or just talk to other people like in the coffee shop, they're not like, not everybody's tuned into this. Like, oh yeah, the fact that we have a completely opaque supply chain, what does supply chain even mean, Mm -hmm. is what's leading to massive destruction of our ecosystems and changing our global environments. But I think it's useful to share that knowledge of like how this is affecting us. Like, oh, why should I care about fair trade coffee other than it being the ethical right thing to do? Um, I think sometimes when we're going back to what you said in the very beginning is that we have a disconnect of relationships. Most people aren't even aware or asking or questioning. Like, where is this coming from? Why should I care? It's like, no, it's done. Like, here's my coffee. Here's my Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I'm good. It's true. And what gives me hope is that there's a a rising tide of consciousness that's beginning to care about those things. And as the globe becomes more teleconnected through social media. Teleconnected. Yeah. Teleconnected. I just said that, (laughs) didn't I? You know, we, we get to experience the world in ways that we can't, you know, we haven't been able to see, you know, Mm -hmm. so the, the recent news around the Amazon burning, I mean, that the Amazon has been burning for a long time. It's a very bad year for it. So it's getting some press, but the public outcry around that is is been higher than ever. And at the same time, it's very hard to see the kind of plank in our own eye. I mean, in America, we've turned all of the plains to grains. We've logged all of our forests two or three times. And who are we to say that they can't develop in a pathway that best suits themselves? And so this is that kind of intellectual, you know, enlightened imperialism that I was talking about that, you know, it's very difficult to, from a top-down approach, say, hey, stop burning the Amazon. You're, you know, causing global warming. That, that, that is the wrong approach by far to try to get them to stop burning the Amazon. Yeah. And so you're, you mentioned levers earlier. There are all these levers that we can pull. Now, are these levers that we can pull in order to get people to be more conscious or are they levers that we can pull in order to solve the problems? Maybe it's both. 
Yeah, I think it is both. And, you know, there, there are levers everywhere. And the way that we work with farmers, I'll get kind of to what MADAG does on the ground. Let's and I'll, do it. I'll, and I'll tell you about what kind of levers we pull to get things going. Mm-hmm. Is MADAG, our main work is to help farmers thrive with regenerative agriculture that in ways that creates both ecological and financial wealth. And so we, we really work at optimizing, you know, how do you create a farm vision and a farm plan that builds the life you want and builds true value in the wholest sense of the word. And so, you know, money, you know, we run in the paper dollar right now, the whole globe, when it's really run on solar dollars and carbon. I mean, carbon is the true currency of the life system. Oh, yeah. You know, I it never is, thought about it that way, but you're totally right. Oh, it's everything. It's the fabric. I mean, it's it's the table here, I think. Yep. It looks wood. You know, it's a big part of ourselves. Carbon is both the fabric of life, and it's also the energy source. You know, when we eat things, we break carbon to carbon bonds and harvest right. those electrons, and that's how we drive metabolism. You know, so carbon is the true currency of all ecosystems, including ourselves. And we're so far away from that. So we use paper dollars, you know, to do all these financial transactions and survive and live and exchange in carbon in some ways. But, you know, money drives things. And so we're conscious of that. And so we work with farmers to be both both financially successful while building ecological wealth at the same time. And part of that ecological wealth is reinvesting in soil, restoring soils, building carbon-rich soils. And what we've learned with farmers is that you know, in, in many ways, we work with big farmers, uh, commodity farmers that have thousands of acres. Those are the primary people we work with across the Great Plains of America for now. It's relatively easy to design a farm plan to sort of get out of the industrial system onto that country road of good values and virtues again. Uh, but it's very difficult to put into action. You know, it's very easy to dream big about your life. You know, I want, you know, a cabin up in the mountains. You know, you can dream easily. But to actually achieve that requires an entirely different set of skills to actually make it happen. And what do you mean? Give us an example. It it takes money. You know, you can dream big, but to get there, it takes a community. It takes knowledge. It takes money. It takes, you know, an entire suite of activities to actually pursue your dreams. So what we do is we dream big with farmers about, you know, creating a regenerative farm plan. We call it carbon farm planning. It's kind of method of design that came out of California, the Carbon Cycle Institute and Fiber Shed and the Marine Carbon Project. It's basically a holistic design program that uses things like holistic management and agrarian. We ram it all together into a whole farm design system that optimizes the amount of carbon coming into the system. Mm -hmm. And farmers, it takes a little while for farmers to get that. You know, it's like, okay, I'm thinking usually in dollars, not thinking about carbon. And we, we, we show that actually they're linked together. And so once we create the whole carbon farm plan or the regenerative farm plan, there's a lot of words for it. We then activate it with three levers. The first one is just understanding knowledge and a community of support. Like, where do I start? How do I get going? Who are the people in my community that are also taking this risk? Where do I find brotherhood or sisterhood in my journey in this world? Many farmers, you know, will talk across the fence lines. So who's, who's talking across the fence line? How can you share that risk? How do you have a sense of togetherness in this? So that's the first one is what's the community of change and what's that support with wisdom and technical assistance to kind of help you on the first step in that journey? The second one is access to money. Most farmers work on razor thin margins. There's not a lot of room for error. 
Um, and the last thing they're thinking about is adding something to their system that's not going to deliver a clear return on investment within a year or two. You know, to invest in the long term is difficult uh, to justify that expenditure. However, there's all sorts of money that can help de-risk that and actually pay for it. One being the government. The government has all kinds of farm bill money from loan guarantees to equip funds to NRCS dollars that are actually waiting there for farmers to use. However, the farmers don't necessarily know how to get access to them. Mm-hmm. It's low on their priority list. There's a fear of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And so Mad Ag, actually, we develop our, our carbon farm plans as a conservation plan, mm-hmm. which liberates that money. So farmers can get tens of thousands of dollars to do things like cover cropping, rotational grazing, compost applications, and all sorts of things that you know ultimately build soil health. We're working on other financing mechanisms, too. We're learning that the government dollars aren't enough to actually get most farmers kind of over the hurdle and into a more carbon-beneficial ag system. So there's other dollars at play, which we can talk about. But the last lever is access to markets. One of the big goals of Mad Ag is to work with farmers to basically decommoditize the food system. Every bin of corn should have a farmer's face behind it. Their blood, sweat, and tears needs to be valued, and commodity markets fail to do that. Commodity markets achieve other efficiencies, which, you know, in some ways are good. They create stability and some resilience from an economic perspective. But from a farmer's perspective, the minute the farmer sells that crop to the grain elevator, they've lost that value. They're now exposed to market forces that could be adjusted by behaviors in Argentina or China. So what we try to do is work with farmers to get out of a simple commodity-based system, expand their crops, and find direct offtake to those crops. It's more complicated for the farmer, you know, because you can't show up to the grain elevator and sell it. But if we can start cracking that open slowly and saying, hey, don't grow that GM corn for that feed. Let's grow a pinto bean and sell it into, you know, this food delivery service that goes directly to feed kids in the Boulder Valley. Like those kinds of ideas start eroding the power of the commodity market to determine the fate of the farm. That's awesome. And did you watch that movie, The Biggest Little Farm? I have. I've seen portions of it, not the whole thing through. Oh, it was so good. Uh, I watched it on the plane. It was on Alaska flight. So if those who are listening are on Alaska flight, definitely go through your little screen and watch it. It's so incredible. I, I cried. I cried. It was very <laughs> inspirational. But I think that is a perfect example of some of the dream that you were talking about, Phil, like how do we design a farm plan that's inspiring, that brings lots of diversity to the land, brings carbon back in. And I was thinking about it. So tying it back to what you're saying, I was thinking about they had all these different crops. It was like 200 different crops or Mm -hmm. fruits and veg that they were growing. And I'm like, how are you finding demand for that? Like, how do you go out? Because then you're just doing a little bit of everything and you're not like total expansively selling into these commodities markets. Yeah. What does that look like? Well, it's calling up CPG brands, consumer packaged good brands in the in the Boulder Front Range area and connecting, you know, them to like sorghum supply for gluten-free pretzels, you know, and so mm. or it's um, you know, talking to other off-takers or buyers about growing ancient grain, you know, taking ancient grains at a higher value, even though the field yield is lower, paying more for those grains that go into sort of higher-end bakery markets mm. or Buyers are the marketplace is just starting to emerge into something mature enough for farmers to start sort of saying, "Ooh, I, can, I don't have to sell the elevator anymore. I can actually, you know, drive to Boulder to a naturally Boulder event, meet some brands, yeah. and start growing for them directly." So, like, 
that takes a pretty courageous farmer. Most farmers don't do that. You know, most, but you're doing that for the yeah, farmer. Yeah, we, we sort of operate on behalf of the farmer. And, you know, the other thing that we do, which I failed to mention, which is in many reasons why we're, why we're here, is that on that third lever of using markets to drive change on the farm, we also are working to monetize ecosystem services with the chief mm-hmm. goal of monetizing carbon. So when a farmer is doing well and right by the land, they can have a long-term reward and incentive you know, to build healthy soil and get paid for it. And so, you know, going back to that kind of three-lever system, the money piece is a great way to catalyze the action and get the farmer kind of up and over the hurdle. In chemistry, they call it the Gibbs free energy, the curve. Um, And then once you put the investment in for those three years, you actually create, you know, basically an exothermic reaction where your farm is, is nature is taking off. And you, you ride with nature, you know, and that's one of the big goals of regenerative ag is working with nature, not against it. And it takes a little while. If you've got poor soils, you don't have the right economic enterprise model. You're not, it's not going to work. But once you redesign it and you inject it with some money to get over the hurdle, then it starts taking a life of its own. And then honestly, happiness, joy, prosperity in the biggest senses of those words, it all happens. I love that you just use thermodynamics to describe what was happening and you said Gibbs free energy. So I'm an environmental engineer and thermal scientist. So that made me really happy. Keep the metaphors coming, Phil. I mean, I <laughs> teach people thermodynamics. And it's farming. important. I mean, it's how the world works. Yeah. Including ourselves. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love the interconnectedness that, that Mad Ag plays between what the farmer wants to do, which is ultimately be an artist on their land mm-hmm. and cultivate something with a sense of pride and with their community and sharing this human capital and having access to new markets. And from Nori's perspective, we love groups like Mad Ag. In Nori Speak, we call you a data manager because we never want to be in the business of telling someone how to farm. We don't want to say you must farm this way or another way, but merely if you're able to increase the outcome of the soil organic carbon, here is an incentive market where you can monetize that. But I want to go into like some of the challenges that you face when like what works and what doesn't work when approaching a grower who might want to participate in this long-term planning process. Uh, what do you find being most successful to start thinking about? engaging these carbon farm plans? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, the farming culture is, can be divided up in many different ways. And we're finding that sort of first movers and early adopters in the social movement vernacular is, is where we are, you know, and there's, there's a whole section of, you know, the, the soil health movement is actually very wonderfully broken up into all of these subcultures and and they could go you know from permaculture to the soil health movement with Gabe Brown to conservation agriculture and no till on the plains that style there's there's all of these subcultures that is sort of emerge in different sectors and they all have various levels of appetite to adopt holistic farm management whether it's regenerative or carbon farm planning or whatever they call it it's it's sort of all different words for the same thing which gives me a lot of hope that there is sort of a North Star out there that everyone's orienting to, and they're using the language and their story and their place to best kind of get there. And I really like the way that there's a, a natural diversity of the movement kind of starting to bloom or emerge. I have this massive sense of emergence right now, just even talking with Nori and seeing Regen walk there and Propagate Ventures. Like, we're all in this, like, wildflower field taking place. We don't know what it's going to look like, but it's exciting and active. 
So back to the challenges. The challenges are just being with the farmer and getting a sense for their land and building trust. Like off, you know, and, and we build trust pretty quickly, you know, because we're not peddling inputs and materials actually, and we don't even charge the farmer. You know, we're not like most ag folks. You know, we we do have revenue models that we work with the farmer on. Like for instance, in Nori, you know, we split the carbon value fifteen percent and eighty five percent. That's how we get paid, but it's only once you know the credits get sold, which we have to wait till the market launches for that. But you know that we go in really clear with the farmer, and that actually says, oh, they're they have skin in the game with us. They're interested in kind of going with us through the process, and when we build that trust quickly, it opens up all sorts of conversations. And every farm is very different. And so we find that some farms are, we might approach them based on nori, but they're actually much more interested in, you know, transitioning to organic. And they're not mutually exclusive. You mean they're exclusive. not all totally excited about nori? Well, I'm just <laughs> they've seen other car- carbon markets come and go. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a little bit of a black eye on the carbon market. And, yeah. you know, land-based protocols have historically been really expensive and, and savvy farmers know those limitations. And and are concerned about it. So they're, they're watching cautiously, though they're excited enough to participate. So I think that's a good sign. Yeah. And as they should be cautious, but also still optimistic that we can, someone and we'll figure it out and learn from the past experiences of what didn't work. Hopefully I think, I think that's Nori's doing that. Thanks so much, Phil. <laughs> Anyways, I cut you off. Continue. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it goes back to this question, you know, farming moves at the speed of trust, finding ways to join with the grower as a partner, you know, looking at this long-term, let me help transition a plot of land from one thing to another thing, whether we're looking at like, like, you know, Mm -hmm. production scale agriculture to something that is more regenerative, introduces new crop varieties, uh, transitions to organic, really just hitting all, all the boxes and saying, where can we stack all the benefits to make this worth your while? So why isn't this happening more quickly? Like, why, why isn't everyone doing this? That's a good question. It goes back to the system. The system that's intact and been made robust by insurance and debt and farm bill and subsidy programs and the simplicity of economic relations between the, the grower and the grain elevator and those kinds of those contracts, the, the system that is currently in place that we're trying to disrupt is not only very robust from a, uh, an interest point of view, from all the stakeholders making money in it, but it's really difficult to break out of because farmers, of all the individuals that I can think of, farmers are less apt to take risk. You know, and, and one way, way that's hit me recently is that, you know, I live in Boulder where no one is doing the same thing. Everyone is taking risk, trying to carve their way in the world. When you drive to the middle of Nebraska, you know, the reverse is true. Most people are doing some version of the same thing. You know, they're growing mm-hmm. corn, they're growing soybeans. And so to take a risk and break out of that is actually culturally very difficult, not only financially, but, you know, we hear stories about, you know, I tried to grow a cover crop and now my son doesn't play quarterback on the football team anymore. I mean, there, there, are, there are stories like that where, you know, creating change in communities that are not used to change, you can be a social pariah in a, in a, in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so I think from culture to finances, there are all these barriers that have to be systematically addressed. And part of the system of change that I describe 
systematically breaks them. Um, that's why our first lever of support, it was what we call wisdom. We don't call it technical assistance. I mean, that's so boring. We call it wisdom. You know, most farmers are, they're spiritual, um, people that are there because there's a sense of belonging and place and something greater than them happening. And so wisdom is the best word, not technical assistance. You know, it's, we, we connect with their hearts and, you know, their hearts are seeking a world that is more beautiful than what they're currently operating in. It's their hearts, not their minds. And so if we can connect with the heart first, everything kind of softens and then we go. Yeah. So it's not always about science. It's like the science comes from the motivation. Anybody can figure anything out. And so sometimes I get a little bit frustrated with really heady conversations because while they are super valuable. They're the second piece. It's like, how do I motivate you based off of what really matters to you? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's important, right? You talked about how, how in order to break out of these, uh, the current system commodities markets as they are today, people need to be comfortable with doing something different. But if their entire community, all their loved ones, all their friends, all their potential love interests, right. Are going to look at them like a pariah then they'll never do it. And so mm-hmm. how do we make them feel more valued and how do we actually get them to, I don't know, kind of be cool in the sense of their communities, like to adopt these practices? I don't know. Well, I think it's also Branding. like own, own the change. It's not someone's coming in to convince you to adopt practices, but it's like these sticking ideas that make it feel like you've wanted to do this idea your whole life. Yep. You just never had the opportunity in front of you. Much of the way that we catalyze change is not by being, you know, we don't see ourselves as the savior with all of these things that we're offering. What we do is we show up and say, hey, do you know that Steve Tucker is doing that over there? Have you seen him? You know, and, uh-huh. and you know, some people might be like, oh, yeah, that guy's wildcat. I mean, I'm not going to touch that. That guy's a wildcat. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, people know that Steve is successful. And they're they're taking notice. You know? What did Steve do? Who's Steve Tucker? Oh, uh, Steve Tucker is a, a farmer friend of ours. He's actually part of the Nori pilot launch. Um, he's in Venango, Nebraska. I think I can say that. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, you could totally say that. I was just like, <laughs> you know, kind of shrugging like shrug emoji because I focus mainly on the demand side, and I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably have known that Steve Tucker was in our pilot. Uh, but that's okay. There's a lot of people coming in, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so Steve is one of the people we work with. He has 4,600 acres. He's uh, farms in Venango, Nebraska. He's a charismatic farmer that is just charging hard to do. Um, you know, regenerative ag. And he does all kinds of crazy things. He grows like hairy vetch and peas in a biculture. And then he harvests them both and he sorts the seeds and he gives all the vetch seeds to green cover for more cover crops. He takes the peas and he moves them into, you know, his own animal feed supply chain. So he's, mm-hmm. he's highly diversified. He's trying everything. He's well respected in the region. Um, and he's building soil carbon hand over fist. And it's really exciting. And well, so he's he's one of, you know, we help him and he, he helps us, I think, much more. I mean, he lets us show up on his farm anytime we want. We bring, you know, all of the, the fellows and people in our ecosystem we can bring to his farm. And he'll always take us in and just teach us and show us everything that's working for him and not working. Aren't those people amazing? They're amazing. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate you. Yeah, and they're everywhere. That's the great thing. These are yeah. like little lighthouses on the hills all over the place. Mm-hmm. And some some have the ability to attract people to them. Um, and then some people are more iconoclastic and they're kind of the lone person mm-hmm. doing their thing. And, and 
not all farm culture is the same. And you can kind of have both dynamics happen. For sure. So glad you talked about theory of change a little bit. And, and we've touched on it. But what is MADAG's theory of change? That's a good question. Our, our model of change I, I outlined, which is sort of farm planning, support with these catalytic levers, that's, that's our model. Our theory of change is fundamentally um, helping people fall in love with their place. And in that falling in love is an inherent sense of reciprocity that the more that I, I give to the land, the more that I'll receive, not only in terms of yield, um, which is often where the money comes from, but in terms of long-term resilience to change and ability to pass on the farm to their family and a lot more fun, like innovation, experimentation, growing new things and not growing corn, soy, corn, soy, corn, soy, corn, soy. It's, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more intriguing. Um, it's a lot more attractive, um, not only from a, a, an aesthetic point of view um, on the landscape, but also just from a, you know, an economic and ecological vitality point of view. You know, the more, the more diversity you have on the farm, the more resilient you are to economic market shifts as well as climate shifts. And, you know, climate change is, is happening and, and farmers are starting to realize that. Whether they use that word or not still is sort of up in the air. But I, I think that farmers like the resilience to, to climate change. They, they're feeling the pressure from, you know, intense heats, uh, water, I mean, you name it. And they're preparing. And, the, and, and they know that they're vulnerable when you grow two crops. It seems like we're seeing a shift here from the monstrous global economy to just more local economies. And not that there, ha there has to be like no global economy, right? That's yeah. just not going to happen at this point. But I think we kind of swung from one side of the pendulum to the other. And we went so far to the other side that people are so far removed and market forces or demand in uh, the U.S. can affect what's happening in China and people can start destroying the Amazon to raise livestock. And so maybe we're coming back to the middle. We're trying to so. find that middle where you have local markets and local demand and supply, but then also things that need to be shared globally can but in a much more transparent and traceable way than we've ever seen before. Because I think it's required. I, I agree. And, and some of the things that really inspire me are, are seeing the sort of grain revival. You know, what the, do you mean? Well, there's, there's not only a kind of a heritage in ancient grain revival. There's sort of a, like, what is a whole grain? You know, I, I think of the bread lab. I think of the work of uh, the Land Institute in Kernza. Like there's a, there's, what are the staple crops that are going to carry us forward into the future mm -hmm. and enrich the earth and not deplete it? And there is just a tide of people from soil to shelf filling in the entire need. Soil to shelf. I've never heard that one. I love that. Well, I can't, I can't claim. I, the first time I heard that was from uh, Robin O'Brien. She works with Replant Capital. Okay. So thank you, Robin. Yeah. Um, thanks, Robin. Yeah. So, and, and for instance, I think of like all of the, all the virtues and the things that we hold dear about shopping at the farmer's market are starting to emerge on the high plains where we don't have that, you know, more wealthy clientele to buy it. And it's happening through, I think of Hayden mills and bluebird mills and Camas Valley mills and Anson mills. These are all you know, essentially aggregators of grain supply that keep transparency and farmer well-being totally stewarded and intact. And they transmit that value down, you know, into, into restaurants and, and individuals. And so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a whole 
rising wave of these, I, always, I just call it the grain revival. And it's, it's one thing that gives me a lot of hope for how we're going to re-regionalize the rural areas of our country. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to, I mean, at a high level, humanity has to resolve the relationship between cities and the country in a major way. Because cities depend on the country in so many ways, but that value has been, it's been completely extracted. I mean, the way that corporations, you know, the the city, you know, the big behemoths of capitalism have hunkered down onto rural economy and extracted it from the soil to the heart and soul of it is egregious. I mean, every, so many towns from here to Maryland where I grew up are just boarded up, you know, there, and there's a Walmart, you know, sitting in the country creating a massive vortex of consumption, you know, and all the mom and pop shops that were of that place that, you know, they're all, they're all gone. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's a Walmart or whether it's an ag business selling inputs, you know, it's, it's legitimized the absolute degradation of the soil because once you degrade the soil, you've got to prop it up with a ton of band-aids and that's what ag companies do. Yeah. And it's uh, something that people talk about a lot in the corporate social response, uh, sustainability spaces, linear economies to circular economies. Like mm-hmm. what does the circular economy look like? Green Biz just had their first circular circularity event this past June in Minneapolis, which is also like the hub of a lot of these, um, ag based companies, but they were all in attendance. A lot of them were in attendance. Um, PepsiCo, for example, uh, General Mills talking about like, how do we restore their lands? But the difficulty is like, how do they get their farmers in their supply chain to switch over to more regenerative practices, which could be another flavor of circular agricultural practices? Yeah. Restructuring economy is key. It's in, not easy. In a wholesale manner. <laughs> and so it, it kind of sounds like, I mean, this term comes up on your website and in your publications, the new agrarian culture which is this this force against the sort of commoditization and industrialization that's depleting rural America. Um, yeah. Is that is that our best fight that we got? And how how do you see that fight going down? Yeah, I mean the word agrarian already turns people off cuz they think that like there's a sort of a uh, an exceptionalism to to rural lifestyle. That's agrarianism in its true form kind of means something like that. I like the idea of a new agrarian sort of like, what does it mean to be an agrarian in Manhattan or Brooklyn? You know, I, I think new agrarians are... What is an agrarian? An agrarian believes that, you know, a rural lifestyle of place and belonging and, and local dependencies is the most righteous way to live. That might be a little hard on agrarians, but it's something like that. And for me, an agrarian, I mean, we can all be agrarians, it's just being hyper-conscious of our inescapable bond to the earth. You know, like we are so far detached from our dependency on the earth. I mean, every inhale and every exhale depends on things that are not from us. Mm -hmm. They're coming from other creatures. We are part and parcel, so deeply part and parcel of this earth. But, you know, as Charles Eisenstein talks about, we live in this massive age of separation where we've been completely blinded to our dependency on the oxygen produced by algae in the ocean and the grasses. And because we've been blinded to that, that, that connection and relationship, we've lost our affinity, we've lost our affection for it. And through a deeper understanding of our dependency on the earth, we then create affection. You know, and, and Wendell Berry again, he wrote an essay uh, called It All Turns on Affection. And I, I think he's exactly right. 
pound it. So clearly you're onto something. You've got clients who are wanting to work with you, probably got a bunch of farms that are interested in reaching out. Maybe you've got brands that are like, hey, Mad Egg, help us figure out how to do this for our supply chain. What's next for Mad Egg? Where do you see all this going? Well, like I said, it's a very emergent time. And the way it feels right now in this moment is like the engine is burning a little too hot on a rough road. Like that's, it's like, wow, we are in like launch mode. And the number of opportunities coming at us are almost too much to handle. They are too much to handle. So we're saying no and we're being very calibrated, trying to go back to our core values and our core model of change. And so we have, we're starting out with just sort of, I think, big and strong first steps. And one of those steps is working um, with Boulder County farmers. Um, we got a contract with Boulder County to help um, transition a lot of commodity broad acres into more regenerative farm systems. And so we're working on that. We're also working, we have about 12,500 acres currently being brought into the Nori marketplace, um, which is great. <laughs> I'm excited about that. It's been, I mean, just as a side, it's been a total blast of co-learning. Um, we've done a lot of work with Ryan Anderson in just kind of the deep work of like, Ryan's what is Ryan's on it? the Nori team, guys. I don't know if you've, you know this, but he's amazing. Yes, Ryan's amazing. And Brandon on my team, Brandon Welch is our director of carbon economy and and he and Ryan have spent uh, just hours and hours in the trenches of, of like, what does it mean to bring a farm online? What is it taking? And, and all of the work with Comet Farm, which is kind of the core framework for, you know, prognosticating carbon outcomes. And, and you know, we, yeah, we've just spent hours and hours. And it's been so much fun co-learning. And I, I'm really excited about where it's going. But so to get back to what we're doing and where we're going, everything we do is oriented currently around this sort of model of change. And we're testing it with different projects. One of the projects we're working on right now is called the Perennial Fund. One of the things we've noticed out there is that it's great to create market attractors for farmers to move their systems towards. So whether that's a great marketplace, whether that's Nori, like if you can make more money, farmers love to do that. They also need a lot of capital for their operations, for their equipment, for their loans, and all of this stuff. And We've noticed that there's a lack of capital to help farmers transition to organic and regenerative techniques. So when a farmer transitions to organic, they often hit a, a trough where they are losing money during those transition period, those, those transition years. And so we're actually putting together a fund. We're right at the beginning of raising it, around $3.5 million, to stack on top of those NRCFs and farm bill dollars that we have access to. So it's like we have... This farm bill dollars coming in for the farms. We do a farm plan to orient how those farm bill dollars are going to flow. We also can stack on additional money, which we're raising from you know both philanthropic and uh, program-related investments from foundations, to take a risk and say, hey, we're going to actually lend the farmer money for that three-year transition. They're not going to owe anything back to the fund for those three years. And then they'll share 20% of their net profits for five to seven years and pay back the fund. And if they can't do it in 10 years with all the help we can give them, then we're going to forgive the loan. Wow. And this is part of that virtue. You know, in you know, human societies for millennia have had a concept of, of forgiveness, death forgiveness or jubilee. And we need to embody those virtues in the financial system. And I strongly believe this high level. Here's, here's a statement that I really, really, really strongly believe in, which is, you know, until the financial economy embodies all of the virtues that describe good human economy, we will fail to achieve the world that we hope to create or see. 
And so we have to take concepts of debt forgiveness and put them wholeheartedly into a fund model. Like it has to be there. It has to be built in. And so we're, we're, we're flirting with these ambitious ideas within the perennial fund. It's named the perennial fund because um, whatever money comes in that's philanthropic will just revolve back into the next fund. So anyway, I'm getting kind of the weeds on the perennial fund, but it's essentially a pool of money that can help farmers transition, you know, to organic and regenerative agriculture. And what the cool thing is, is that in that transition period, it actually sets them up to take part in both organic premium markets and the Nori marketplace. That's wonderful. And it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, which is on the bleeding edge. And what you just said is quite radical, right? It's like we need to um, have really good human economics and loan for like, just forgive it, the loan. That's, that's amazing. And, um, we went, I think when we went out to this global economy, that's what happened. It's like, oh, I don't know you. I don't trust you. Why should I give you the money? So for coming back in, then we should be able to do more things like that. And what you guys are doing at MADAG, doing this with the perennial fund is quite risky, but on behalf of people out there, like, thank you. Cause you're going to help catalyze the change that we need to see that gets us back to that happy medium. Agreed. Well, this has been a great podcast, Phil. If someone wants to get involved or find out more information, how can they get involved and where can they go? So if you're a farmer and you want to get involved with the Nori Marketplace and work with Mad Ag, you can email Brandon at madagriculture.org. Um, he's the director of Carbon Economy. If you want to reach out generally and talk about sort of our model and theory of change, you can reach out to me, Phil Taylor, at philip with one L at madagriculture.org. And uh, I'd love to catch up and, and talk about your work. Well, cool. We did not get the slam poetry, so we will have to probably bring you on for another one. And we'll make sure that happens. Thanks so much for coming on, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Phil.